Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. We are still in our sermon series on First and Second Samuel. I hope you guys have been enjoying it as much as we have. We being the pastors who every week are praying over and prepping a sermon based on these two books. We've been studying and looking for lessons from leaders. What do our leaders in First and Second Samuel do well? How can we be encouraged by that? Also, where do they fail? Right? If they're doing, if they're doing something and they're doing it poorly, how can we learn from that and make sure that we don't do the same thing? And so that's where we've been. That's where we're going. And, uh, today is going to be a great day. We're looking at chapter 18 and then just a couple of verses into chapter 19. Uh, if you were here last week and you had the marathon of the three chapters, I appreciate that you came back. That was by far the longest sermon I've ever preached. Uh, and while I was up here, uh, I was looking down and I was like, okay, it's 45 minutes, but I got to be almost done. No, I have 15 more pages. And so we went quickly. Uh, and yet I really do believe because of some of my interactions with you that Holy Spirit was there and uh, allowed people to glean from it. And there was some learning that took place. So thank you. Today will not be quite as bad in the amount of verses, I mean. It's going to be a little bit shorter. So I wanted to ask you guys a question, though. Who today, this morning, is ready to get real? Today, right now, right? Who's willing to be transparent, okay? How many of you right now know that you are overdue for an oil change in one, if not more, of your vehicles? Anybody willing to raise their hands? I only see a couple, so either we are, oh, I see a couple more back there by the coffee station, which makes sense. They're not in their seats right now. They're getting coffee. Um, I thought there would be a lot more hands going up because it, I talk to a lot of people that are like, oh man, I've been meaning to get into an oil change for my vehicle for the last seven months. You know what I mean? Like that's not uncommon to hear that, right? And, and why is it that we know what we need to do for the health of our cars, but sometimes we put it off? If you are one of those people who religiously get in there every 3,000 or 5,000 miles, or like our Volkswagen is 10,000, isn't that crazy? But anyways, I'm not an auto guy, but I, I love that that's only every 10,000. But if you struggle with that, you're not alone, right? We know what we need to do for the health of our cars, but we don't always do it. And I, I think sometimes, this is not an implication that I'm flinging towards any of you, but we don't realize the severe consequence of not doing something that we need to do, right? That's kind of an essential Obviously, if you have a flat tire, you're going to replace the tire, right? Or get it fixed because you can't drive anywhere without it. If somebody rear ends you, see, I didn't make it your problem. I made it somebody else's. But if somebody rear ends you, you're going to get your car fixed, right? If your lights go out, you can't drive at night, you're going to need that bulb fixed. So there are essential or these really important big things that we go in and we take care of. But sometimes we ignore things like an oil change, which actually is really important, right? If I don't do it, my vehicles will hurt. And sometimes, like Kevin and I, Pastor Kevin and I were prepping this sermon this week, we talked about that old adage or that, that, that saying that's true in life, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So on your car, if you have a flat tire, you can't just choose to keep driving on it. But if you need an oil change 3,000 miles ago, you could be tempted to continue driving, not really understanding what might be happening to your car because of that. 
Now, if we do this in leadership, so you got to transition this to leadership because that's what we're talking about, right? If we do this in leadership roles in our life, we are going to be in for a rude awakening. And that's what we see here in David's life in 2 Samuel 18 and 19. A lot of times in, in leadership, and, and for you who are out there that are bosses, and you know what? I would say it falls on most of us. Even if you say, hey, well, I just stay home, right? There, there are times where we spend all of our energy, all of our emotions on the nosy neighbor, the negative team member, the complainers who never positively contribute anything, right? We spend a lot of time and energy on those people, whether at work or at home or in the neighborhood, But how much time does that then leave for the faithful, the future leaders, the honorable? What we will hopefully walk away from today after looking at 2 Samuel 18 and a little bit of 19 is a realization of this. If we want to leave well, we must always take time to honor the honorable. Now, a recap quickly for where we're at, in case you've missed the last week or two. Absalom, David's son, has kind of started a rebellion. He wants to overthrow his dad. He's trying to kill his dad, right? And, and this is, this is, there's treachery going on, and, and David now has had to flee. He flees because he doesn't want his son to kill him, but he also doesn't want needless bloodshed, right? And so he escapes Jerusalem. Last week we saw just as Absalom was reaching Jerusalem, right? David now has crossed over the Jordan to get away from his son, get away from the men of Israel who are following his son. He sets up camp. He gets out of Dodge, right? Now Absalom, last week we saw a bunch of different advice coming to him, and and some of it was uh, purposefully given by a spy of David. So we had kind of that spy novel going last week, right? And Absalom, on advice from that spy from David, was working at getting his large force together. And you're like, well, well, that's kind of weird advice for somebody that's pro-David to give to his son. But what that kept, if you remember, it kept them from going out right then and there and chasing down David and his men and killing him. So it actually gave David an opportunity to group his people together, get a little ways out of town, and get ready for Absalom potentially coming after him. So this was advice given to Absalom by the spy from David, and and, and that gave David the time to regroup. So we're going to open up to 2 Samuel 18. We will have the scriptures up here on the uh, up on the screen. But if you want to follow along in your own Bible, you can circle things, highlight things, make little notes, ask little questions to yourself, uh, and then relook at those this week. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Back on our table right there, we have a grab a Bible table. You're welcome to walk back there now or anytime during the service, grab one of those, make that Bible your own, uh, and, and that, that, let that be a gift from us to you today. So let's start reading here in Second. Samuel chapter 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, 
and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better for you that you send us help from the city. Now, there are, are several thousand people with David at this point. His army, they estimate, is around 20,000. 20,000 soldiers with him, these faithful followers. And David wisely gets ready to send his men out, to defend himself by sending out his army to be ready for Absalom and the troops that are coming after him, the rebellious forces. But you'll notice here in these verses that the men say, you shall not go out to David, right? And so Kevin and I noticed that this week, and we're like, that's kind of interesting, and we started speculating on on the words in Hebrew. Now, back at Multnomah 30-some years ago, uh, I took a little bit of Hebrew in some classes, so it's a little bit rusty. We aren't sure, but we thought maybe this was the Hebrew word used for, you are way past your prime, right? So David, you can't go with us, right? Um, and, and so we were, we were kind of joking a little bit about that and laughing about that this week, but really what they're saying is, hey, David, you're a big target, if they get you, this is all over. Absalom wins. You need to stay back. We need to keep you as far away from the battle as possible. This is good, sound advice, even though it was probably tough for David to hear. David wanted to be out there with his men. And that's something we've always looked at in these lessons on leadership is that David loved his men who followed him. David loved to be at the front of the battle and, and to lead in that way. They were saying, hey, we need to keep you safe since killing you is their main objective. The courage of these honorable men should be noted. They are willing to die for David. They believe that David is still God's anointed and that they're willing to put their life on the line for them. And these are honorable men doing this. Now this week, as, as both of us were prepping this and praying over this, serv- uh, this sermon as we were prepping it this week, it made us both think of all of the soldiers we have in our church body. And, and these, uh, this family of soldiers, so many of you that God has brought together, right? You guys and gals and your, your spouses, you guys are willing to put your lives on the line for us so that we can experience freedom. Now that is honorable. In a world where there's not much honor anymore, we want to thank you for what you do, for what you do daily and how you're willing to put your lives on the line for us. So may we, right, you and I who aren't those soldiers, honor them and their families as they serve us. Let's continue on here in verse four. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, okay? They say, David, you probably should stay back. And again, like I said, It probably was solid advice. But David says, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the table at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. 
And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. David submits to his men's wishes and he's going to stay behind, but physically he wants to show that he's with them. So he goes out to the gate and as the soldiers are walking by, he's, he's there for them. He's encouraging them, right? Hopefully he's raising the morale. And he says though, to these commanders, deal gently with my son, my, the, the young man, Absalom. Now, this is a clear order that everybody heard, right? And, and I think the author is, is straightforward about that. He gave this order. The commanders for sure heard it. And most of the soldiers probably heard it. And this is going to be important later in the story, right? Now, we can ask ourselves, was this wise? David, is it wise not to kill the man who's trying to kill you, right? In light of this situation, is this really wise? Well, Despite the treachery of Absalom, we have to understand David doesn't want to lose another son. No parent wants to lose a child. And so David is, is pleading from the dad's side, not the king's side. Was there wisdom there? I don't know. The, the author doesn't even really say whether this was a wise thing for him to say or not. It's just what he said. And so as they go off to battle, they all hear Deal gently with my son, Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. And no, I'm not getting confused David's number with this. There are other reasons we believe that David's number was about 20,000. But there were 20,000 men lost that day. The battle spread over the face of the country. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. Now, as a pastor, how do you not pause there for a moment and say, we need to break down some stuff right here? Because when you end these couple of verses with that, we've got to figure that out. It says the, def- the forest devoured more men than the sword that day, right? And as we were thinking, uh, how in the world can a forest kill more men than the soldiers, right? But this is God's word. We started thinking maybe it was the ends, Right? I mean, we've, we've probably seen too many movies, and we know that this isn't the case. But man, how do you not put up a picture of Treebert in, in light of that verse and say, man, alive? The, that, okay, it probably wasn't that case. But the truth is, God's hand was against the men of Israel that day. Right? He was against Absalom that day. God has done this before in history, uh, in, in, in the especially in the history of Israel as a nation, right? Defeating enemies with terrain, fear, and otherwise inexplicable reasons. This isn't the first time, but it's a unique verse that the forest devoured more men than the sword. But God gets all the glory. And again, I think that's the way that God likes to show up, right? He likes to show up in ways that we can't explain. And in your life, you maybe haven't had a tree fight for you, right? Or had the situation occur where nature's the one that takes care of something that could be a problem for you. But God shows up in many ways in our lives. And we need to look for those ways. God honors his anointed king, 
David, right? We've talked about this before so often in these two books, the idea of honoring God's chosen person, right? And here we see that God honors his anointed king, David, by defeating the treacherous Absalom. When David was being chased by Saul, David refused to kill Saul because Saul was God's chosen. And David chose to put his trust in God that he would remove Saul when it was time for him to go. That's just one of many other examples that we do have. Now, sadly, the loss of life was great that day. And I'd like to think that even though there was great loss, probably on both sides, especially on Israel's side under Absalom, that God spared them much more loss that day as a people through using this forest. However it was done, right? There were less soldiers battling one another with their sword. But this story, we paused here because this is unique, but we got to continue on to see what happened the rest of that day. It picks up in nine and it says that Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. So Absalom's out in battle as well. Someone who thinks they're the king should be, right? David got himself in trouble with Bathsheba when he didn't go to battle with his men, right? So Absalom's doing it right. He's out there battling, but look what happened here. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under a thick branch of a great oak and his head was caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Now, this is a unique story, and we might be getting a glimpse as to how the forest helped out David and his men that day. But we see this battle. We're in the midst of this battle. And Absalom meets up with David's men, right? He meets up with his men. There's battling. He probably sees that my, I'm outnumbered. Or this isn't good for me. And he turns and he's into the forest and something crazy happens here. He gets stuck in an oak tree. Now, remember, Absalom was explained that he had long flowing hair, right? So I think sometimes this has been pictured that his hair had gotten caught in the tree. We don't know. We're speculating, right? He did talk about his long flowing hair, but somehow his head got caught in the tree, and, and we just have to take the advice of this. Now, Pastor Kevin, if you know Pastor Kevin uh, at all down at the other campus, he said a lesson that we could learn from this was that bald men rule, okay? So if you know Pastor Kevin, he's got a shiny dome and a beautiful beard, right? And he said if he didn't have his long hair, maybe he wouldn't have gotten caught in the tree. Now, we don't know that for sure, but uh, again, these are things that we talk about during the week sometimes, right? So it's also entirely possible that he was probably suspended by his whole head getting caught between these branches, uh, and that would be more uh, ideally of what had happened. But he couldn't get himself out. Whether he was injured or trapped, whatever had happened, he was stuck there, the Bible says, between heaven and earth. And either way, you have to realize that a man who was filled with pride and filled with vanity was now injured and ensnared by a tree and couldn't do anything about it. This was like a death sentence for him. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man, who told you or who told him what you saw? You saw him? 
Why then did you not strike him to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. Now, one of David's servants finds him. One of David's men finds him, and he sees him hanging in the tree, but instead of doing anything about it, either helping the man or killing him, which they were told not to do, he leaves him suspended there and goes and finds Joab, one of the three commanders over the army. Now, Joab finds nothing funny about this story, and he wonders why he didn't just kill him. But remember, this man is doing the honorable thing. He's doing what David asked. He knew that David had given a direct order to be gentle with him. Joab tells the man clearly, you would have been rewarded for killing him. I would have gladly given you 10 pieces of silver. I don't know exactly what that means, but that's some money, right? And a belt, Again, I have no clue what that means, right? He's, he's offered him this belt and 10 pieces of silver. But let's see what happens. The man says to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I dealt treacherously against his life and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. So this man was unmoved by the offer of 10 pieces of silver and a belt, right? The belt did not tempt him at all. And he says, if I had killed Absalom, you'd hang me out to dry when the king found out. You would have stood aloof. You wouldn't have protected me and David would have found out. So Joab said, I will not waste time with, uh, time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel for Joab restrained them. Now, Joab is a complicated man. If you've been here at all studying uh, David's life and, and, and who David has around him, you know this guy is all over the place. Sometimes seems trustworthy and does good, and other times he does evil, right? And yet, I mean, in, in the quietness of my heart, I had to say to myself, how often could I be the Joab? Are there times when I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing, acting in ways that I shouldn't be saying, saying things to people or to my wife or to my children that I shouldn't be saying? And yet here we see some more of that craziness. Joab, one of David's trusted, told him to deal gently with my son. He was so concerned about this that he took matters into his own hands. So he dishonors David, whereas the soldier who found him was trying to honor him. Now, it is crazy, but three javelins didn't seem to do the job. I don't know if this guy was bad aim. I mean, the author says it went through his heart, but his armor bearers, they join him and finish him off, him being Absalom, dishonoring what the king had asked them to do. At the end of this verse, as though we see that he wants the bloodshed to stop, he doesn't want his men to continue pursuing Israel and killing more people, so he sounds the trumpet and he calls off war. And in verse 17, and they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up for himself the pillar, 
uh, that is in the King's Valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. So again, the author is giving us some history. Some of the things that are going on here. Now, Absalom was dishonored by being buried in the woods. Even though he was treacherous and against his father, more likely than not, David would have wanted to bury him in a family tomb. And yet they took it upon themselves to dig a hole, to dig a pit, come upon this pit, throw him in, and then stone him, even though he was dead, which is the punishment uh, for um, dishonoring your parents and a rebellious son. When you look back at the, back at the law. And, and so again, if they meant to do this or if this is just how it happened, we're not sure exactly, but the author just gives us some facts. They take the body, they bury it out in the woods, and he, he instead of being king and ruling over Israel and leading the nation, uh, is in some ways humiliated in his death. The author does note, though, this thick irony that Absalom was a man who had built himself already a monument, which is still standing to this day, so that he would be remembered. Now, in, in, in uh, chapter 14, we remember reading that Absalom had three sons. So those sons must have died or been killed before this was written. Again, we don't have specifics on that. But this is the ending of a life of someone who was trying to do opposite of what God had called Israel to do, which is to honor God's anointed. Absalom is remembered even today for his sin and for his treachery. His life is a monument, but a monument of vanity and arrogance, rebellion and shame. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. Okay, Joab, this was your idea, right? Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go and tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. So Joab says no to Ahimaaz, who wants to run and tell the king what has happened. Right? Maybe he's worried about David's reaction, and so he doesn't want him to uh, be on the receiving end of maybe some fury. So he sends the foreigner. Again, the author is clear about who he sent. He sent the Cushite. Sort of weird. Right? But Ahimez is not going to take no for an answer. Look at what happens next. Then Ahimez, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why? Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will run and have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. And so he said to him, run. Then Ahimez ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates. And the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. And the watchman called out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. 
and he drew nearer and nearer. And the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man is running alone. And the king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running is the, uh, of the first man is like the running of Ahimez, the Zadok, uh, uh, son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimez cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed down before the king with his face to the earth and said, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hands against the Lord, my king. And the king said, it is well with the young man, Absalom. Ahimez answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. So David seems to ignore the news of the victory. He goes straight to his son. He's focusing in on Absalom only. He's totally preoccupied, maybe even obsessed with the fate of his son. While the kingdom hangs in the balance, and we just didn't think this seems right. This isn't right. This isn't honorable to the men who are fighting for you. Now, Ahimez avoids telling David that Absalom is dead. Right? Originally, he wanted to be the one who ran and, and bring all this news to David. But now that he's there, he only tells him part of the story. So David doesn't know. Now, I know that runners think while they run. Now, I don't know that from experience, but my wife has told me that. Right, You go out and you run, and you have time to think. So I, I trust you guys, the runners. Because for me, I usually run from the couch to the refrigerator. And there is some thinking that goes on there. It's just, what am I going to grab to drink or whatever? So, But my wife says when she goes out running for a few miles, she's got some time to think. And so maybe he reconsidered things on his run. right? He not only outran the Cushite, but he's like, yeah, I probably shouldn't tell David that we killed Absalom. Again, we don't know for sure. The author only puts in the facts that we know and read together. But in verse 30, it says, and the king said, turn aside and stand here. He didn't like what he had heard there, right? So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite finally catches up, right? The slower person. And the Cushite said, good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, it is well with the young man Absalom. And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now, the Cushite diplomatically informs the king that his son is dead. May all who rise up against you like him end up the way he did, right? Now, no parent wants to bury his, their child, right? This isn't the way it's supposed to work. Even in a fallen world, it's a painful, it's a hurtful thing. And so we see that David laments that he has outlived his son. And David is grieved, and rightly so, okay? We don't want you to hear that David should not have grieved the death of his son. But he is neglecting the sons and daughters 
of, of Israel, the, the ones who stayed true to him, those Israelites that went with him and said, we will give up all, including our home, to defend you because we know that you are God's anointed, right? He is not even concerned about them. His response here, we see that. And we're going to see a response here of one of his men calling him out on that here in just a second. So David is in this place of mourning. And it was told to Joab... Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that was that day turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So rather than going and meeting the returning victors who risked their life for him, David stays in the city weeping and mourning. Now, when he sent the soldiers out to battle, remember we talked about he went to the gate. He was there physically for them. He talked to them as they went by. He gave them final orders. He was physically present. But here, after the victory, after the loss that inevitably happened, David was nowhere to be found. In doing this, he robs the returning soldiers of their victory. The author clearly writes that there. It's like they were stealing into their own town. They were coming home as if they had fled a battle. He dishonors their sacrifice. What should have been victorious, Absalom and his men defeated so David could go back to Jerusalem and continue to lead. God's anointed over Israel. They felt dishonored. They return to the city like those who had shamefully fled a battle. David robs the honorable of the honor that they deserve. He fails to honor their sacrifice. So again, we have to learn from the good and from the bad of all the leaders throughout 1st and 2nd Samuel. And here David, who has led so well, so often, and who has made mistakes and we've been able to learn from, we need to learn again when men and women deserve honor in our lives, we need to give that honor to them. And David robbed that from his men that day. Now, Joab, again, this guy Joab, who's been all over the place. This reminds me of a crazy roller coaster. Back in the days, I used to love roller coasters. And roller coasters went up and down and twist and turn and upside down. And you never knew what was coming. That's kind of been Joab. Do you guys agree with me? This character is all over the place in David's life. But look at how he responds here in verse 5. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have said this day, uh, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because your, your, uh, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were still alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. This is a hard word. This is a hard word to come from one of your commanders, one of the people you trust the most. Joab here, he comes unglued with what David is doing and how he responds. And so this is a full-on rebuke. If you do only care about your blood family... Consider that the rest of your blood family is safe because of the sacrifice 
of these men. Your wives, your concubines, your other children would all be dead if Absalom had had his way. His accusation hits the mark when he says that David wrongly, in verse 6 here, loves those who hate you and hates those who love you. David fails to grieve over the loss of the soldiers' lives like when he failed to grieve after he had murdered Uriah and other soldiers in the process to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. He was preoccupied with his own sin, and at that point, preoccupied to the point where he didn't see that he had murdered. He was taking care of a problem. And here he's preoccupied with this failed relationship of his son, and in doing so, dishonoring all of those men who had stood beside him at the toughest point in his life. Joab, uh, Joab calls him to the carpet. Now, don't misunderstand me again. I'm saying it's not wrong to grieve, and it's not wrong for David to grieve the loss of his son. But leaders, we have responsibilities to lead even in the tough times. We don't have the luxury of being self-absorbed. And I think as we read scripture, not only these couple of books, but the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament, our focus is to be on the men and women that God has called us to be. And that's not looking at ourselves only, but also those around us. And so if you have been placed in a place of leadership, which my argument would be every single one of you out there is leading in some ways, we need to be looking outside of ourselves. Yes, there will be time to take care of our own mourning and grief and ourselves, but we also need to make sure we're looking at others. The last couple of verses that we're looking at today. Now, therefore, arise, Joab says, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Joab finishes out his rebuke of David and says, uh, he swears by the Lord, right, to drive home this point. If you don't make this right, you're not going to have anybody with you by the end of the night. Right? Whether he's... Uh, maybe threatening to lead the soldiers in his own rebellion, which again, Joab, you never know what's going on with him. Or he may simply be stating that these soldiers will desert you, right? If you don't shape up, be a man who leads, David. How can you act this way? Why would anyone stand by you? But either way, whether it's this rebellion of his own or just men leaving in, in general, he says, if you refuse to right this wrong, it will be worse than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. What Joab is saying is, it, this is a pivotal moment in your life, maybe the biggest ever. Are you going to make it right? If you don't start leading, David, Absalom might, have, uh, might as well have won. Because there's not going to be anybody left. You're going to be alone. 
David, you're uh, about to completely lose all respect and all ability to lead if you don't make this right. And although no words are recorded, it appears that David finally spoke kindly, did what he should have done, sat in the gate and talked to his men, to the troops. He honored the honorable sacrifice that they had all made. I think in this passage, we see that honoring the honorable is important. And everyone in this room has had people sacrifice for them, right? Time, money, energy, mental capabilities or capacities, I should say, right? All those things that we need from mentors in our lives. Some of us have had other men and women pay the ultimate sacrifice, for us. Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice for you, his very life, taking upon himself the sins of the world so that through faith in Jesus, we can be forgiven and live forever with him. You can't earn Christ's sacrifice. It was freely given to you. It's already done. And and, and it's important to understand that. But how we can honor Jesus Christ in in our lives is to receive the gift, the free gift of eternal life. It was purchased by his blood. It was given to you and I if we place faith in him. And you know how it is when you receive a gift and you're grateful and you say thank you. Right? You know how it is when you give a gift and then someone says thank you to you. Right? It's important. Those things are important. I don't know if you've ever given a gift to someone and had it rejected. Hopefully that hasn't happened to very many of you, if any of you. But how would you feel after being given a gift and then it being rejected? You can also honor it similarly uh, in, in the same way that the soldiers who went into battle for David. In the sense that we, as Christ followers, need to be willing to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ. Right? He's our commander. Are you and I willing to do that? Are you willing to lay down your life for him? Whether that's time and energy, looking for opportunities to share your savior with a lost world, that maybe your neighbor, maybe your coworker, it may be a family member. Are you willing to lay down your life? In other words, lay down the comfortableness of not engaging with someone that might disagree with you to share the good news of Jesus. You can honor God by sharing that good news with others. And we all have people other than Jesus uh, that we, we know who have sacrificed for us. Again, whether it's energy or, or time or money financially or even their lives. David had Joab to push him to honor the people in his lives. Right? Honor those that are honorable. And my encouragement to you today would be the same. And and, and so we want to be a little bit of Joab this morning. Pastor Dave came up with this idea uh, about 12 years ago. We used it. It was great. And I decided to dig it up for this morning. So most of you, as you were coming in, I tried to give you one of these cards. Okay. And if you didn't get one, maybe you grabbed one uh, with the kids left. If you still haven't, there's more back on the table. But I want you to grab that out even right now. 
And I think this would be a fantastic time to honor someone. Now, if you notice, I put two cards in there. And I think they're both equally important. I think one of them, I would encourage you to write a note to someone who sacrificed for you. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's one of your parents. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a pastor or a mentor. Someone who's impacted your life spiritually. Maybe it's someone who week after week after week you know comes and sets up chairs here. Right? Or serves in kids ministry. So that you can sit in here, they watch your kid. Maybe it's somebody in the military. One of your Uh, your friends who literally has put their life on the line. Well, during that next song, I want to encourage you during the song to stay in your seat and to worship God by starting a note to that person today. Maybe you'll just get their name down. Maybe you'll get a couple of words. Maybe you'll finish it. But if you start it today, I hope that that will be something you carry out of here and finish and even drop in the mail or give it to them this week to show them that you see, that you know, that you've been impacted. And in that way, you would be honoring the honorable. The second card that's in there, and maybe you want to do that one here uh, today during this next song, it would be an opportunity to write down something for God. Maybe nobody sees this. Maybe it's something you share with your family or a close friend. Maybe it's something that you tape up to your mirror in your bathroom. But write God a note. Write God a poem. Write down some thoughts that maybe you haven't verbalized before. How you could thank God for what he has done. Give honor to him for who he is and what he's done in your life. So this next song and maybe even into the next song after that, it might look a little bit different. I want to invite you to stay in your seat if you want to and start writing on those cards. When you feel led, go ahead and stand up and start singing. The worship team knew this was coming. So I told them they may be singing alone for a little bit. I'll do my best to sing also. But take your time and let's be a people who honor the honorable.